0: It is not easy to say what metaphysics is. In this podcast, Adrian Moore, professor of philosophy at St. Hugh's College, Oxford, explores the definition and origin of metaphysics, and then discusses some of the enduring metaphysical questions.
1: One of the problems about saying what metaphysics is, like the problem of saying what philosophy more generally is, is that it is itself a philosophical problem, it's a matter of controversy no two people working in metaphysics would give you the same definition. Part of the reason for that is that it's hard to say what philosophy more generally is, and metaphysics in a way is philosophy of the purest kind. It's not exactly a definition, but it's one good way to think about what you're doing when you're doing metaphysics. Philosophers are in general concerned with exploring the ways in which we make sense of reality and ways in which we think about the world. And quite often they're looking at specific ways in which we make sense of reality or look at the world. So there is a branch of philosophy, for example, which is the philosophy of mathematics, where they're specifically interested in what's going on when we engage in in mathematical thought or the philosophy of science, which is specifically concerned with what's going on when we engage in scientific practice. But with metaphysics, it's as if it's the kind of kernel, the pure kernel that's left over, when you're thinking about what's going on when we think about the world at all, or make sense of reality at all, never mind what specific area of inquiry we're concerned with. So there's a kind of generality that attaches to metaphysics. Um, Metaphysicians are interested in the most general concepts that we use, the most general categories that we use when we're thinking about ourselves and our place in the world. So metaphysicians will be concerned for example, with concepts like the concept of space and time. Not because they have the same kind of interest in space and time that perhaps a physicist would have, where the physicist is interested in empirical investigations into how space and time are structured, but just because spatio-temporal thinking is itself so pervasive, so deep, and conditions so much of the rest of our thinking. So it's as it were, pure philosophy, or the purest kind of philosophy. As I say, no two metaphysicians, no two philosophers will give you exactly the same definition, though something along these lines, I think, would be a fairly common feature amongst the definitions that they might supply. And in particular, I think you would find that this idea of extreme generality would be very likely to crop up in any definition that was supplied. My own pithy one-line definition that I like to give for what it's worth is that it is the most general attempt to make sense of things,
0: the most general investigation of what it is to make sense of things. So would metaphysicians say that philosophers who concentrate on more target areas, like the philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of science, mm. and before they get to that point they make metaphysical assumptions? I think that is a good way to put it, actually, Yes. Whatever area of
1: thought you're investigating, there will be a certain kind of framework that conditions everything that you're saying, all the moves that you're making, the ways in which you're thinking. And the more specific your inquiry, the more likely it is that there'll be a range of those background presuppositions. And, generally speaking, philosophers are people that sort of like to back off and explore their own presuppositions or the presuppositions that we all make. And it may be that another good way to think of metaphysics or to think of the what metaphysicians are doing is to say that they're the people that try and back furthest off. <laughs> They've backed off to the extent that they're interested in looking at basic presuppositions that we all make all the time. One route into this whole question is actually to think a little bit about the etymology. I mean, it's an interesting historical question where the word itself, metaphysics, comes from. And the story is quite an interesting one. This goes back to ancient philosophy, of course, and 200 or 250 years after Aristotle, died. There was the first attempt to produce, as it were, a library of his works, to sort of systematise all his works and to collect them together into a library. Or so the story goes. I should preface all of this by saying this is not absolutely uncontroversial. I mean, there are scholars that think this is apocryphal. But anyway, this is the story that's standardly told, that there was this attempt to produce a library of Aristotle's works And he produced a set of works that were concerned with the natural world, which were bound together in a volume that was called Physics. And it bears a very striking relation to a discipline that still today is called Physics. But immediately after that volume of works, there was another volume which was more of a miscellany. It was simply called the books that come after the ones in the physics <laughs> or the works that come after the ones in the physics. And in Greek what that was was ta metata physica. And basically what Aristotle was doing in, in those books was the kind of thing which would nowadays be recognised as metaphysics. And that's where the discipline according to this story got its name. Literally What it means is, after the physics... And that was meant, according to this story, in the very literal sense... ...that these were the books, the works that were bound together in the volume... ...that came after the volume called Physics. But, whether this story is true or not, whether it's apocryphal or not... ...the fact of the matter is that the name has a certain kind of appropriateness... ...because there is a sense in which what you're doing when you engage in metaphysics is studying issues that arise after metaphysics or above and beyond metaphysics, which is the other thing that meta can mean in Greek. That's to say, and this goes back to our earlier metaphor, you're backing off and you're asking, amongst other things, what are the very basic presuppositions that physicists make when they engage in their work or that scientists more generally make? And a lot of people used to think that you couldn't seriously undertake work in metaphysics until you had done a lot of serious work in, in physics, that it had to be grounded in physics. You know, First of all, you engage in the ground-level practice, and then you're in a position to back off or to step up, or whatever the relevant metaphor is, and to investigate issues in metaphysics beyond physics, after physics,
0: literally. So the implication there is that philosophers who want to study metaphysics must first have a grounding in some other form of philosophy or science. That is the implication, that's right. And, And as I say, a lot of people
1: have in the past been firmly of the view that that's true. I think even now a lot of philosophers and metaphysicians in particular would say that there was some justice to that claim, that... You can't seriously engage in the philosophy of mathematics, for example, unless you know quite a lot of heavy-duty mathematics. You can't really seriously engage in the philosophy of physics unless you know quite a lot of serious heavy-duty physics. Now, it, it may be that metaphysics is a little bit of an exception to this rule, despite the etymology and despite all that we've said about how it used to be viewed, simply because, according to the story that I've just told, the metaphysician, insofar as the metaphysician is backing off from anything, the metaphysician is simply backing off from ways in which we all think all the time. So the tight connection with physics in particular that is there in the etymology perhaps isn't any longer faithfully reflected in in the discipline. There are metaphysicians whose work is very close to philosophy of science and who do know a lot of physics, and, and they do allow their physics to inform their metaphysics. But there are also metaphysicians who are concerned with concepts that are just part and parcel of common sense, and who wouldn't profess to be experts or even moderate experts in any other discipline. And yet, their work in metaphysics is good, valuable work, even so. But it is commonly said that um philosophy in general, metaphysics in particular benefits from a grounding in some other discipline, and certainly there may be justice to the claim that metaphysics benefits from the grounding in other branches of philosophy. And I think one of the most interesting questions is how it connects
0: with other branches of philosophy. So how far is it possible to step back when you're studying metaphysics? Because surely you're stepping back from metaphysics at some stage.
1: Another excellent question. And it's like like most of these questions. I mean, as soon as you start reflecting on them there you are doing more metaphysics. Uh, From that point of view, metaphysics is just like philosophy. I mean, it has its own nature as one of its principal areas of concern. I mean, one of the most interesting philosophical questions is what is the nature of philosophy? One of the most interesting metaphysical questions is what is the nature of metaphysics? And all the Great metaphysicians from the past have not only had a lot to say within metaphysics, they've also all, without exception, had a lot of interesting things to say about metaphysics. And it's because, I mean your question brings this out very graphically, it's because as soon as you start thinking about these very fundamental questions about the nature of our thinking, then it's not going to be long before, in particular, you're thinking about how far we can get in thinking about the nature of our thinking. I mean, it just is inherently reflexive. Your question brings this out very well. I mean, if we like the metaphor of stepping back, and if we think that's roughly the kind of thing that we're doing when we're doing metaphysics, then, of course, there's in particular going to be a basic question about the extent to which we can do that. Is there some fundamental framework that we operate with that we can't get outside at all on pain of just ceasing to make sense perhaps there are certain basic categories that we use which you can't step back from the very process of stepping back from them would mean that you weren't thinking any longer that's a natural worry that's a natural worry about the metaphor and it's a natural worry about the entire enterprise so, so your question is an excellent one But the interesting thing is, the ironical thing is, that the very process of reflecting on that question is itself a paradigmatically philosophical, metaphysical process. I mean,
0: that is itself an interesting metaphysical question. And if there's lots of disagreement on what metaphysics is, Mm -hmm. how do metaphysicians... ...have some common purchases? Are there common theories in metaphysics that most agree on?
1: There's very little that's agreed on, actually. It's a discipline that's bound together by a set of questions, I suppose, and concerns... ...rather than a set of theories or agreed results... ...or anything even remotely resembling agreed results. So that's one respect in which it's fundamentally different from any of the sciences... ...or fundamentally different from mathematics... There are characteristic metaphysical questions which keep recurring throughout the history, going right back to ancient metaphysics. There's progress of a sort. I mean, there are certain false starts that are made, and once you've seen that it's a false start and pay sufficiently close attention to the history of philosophy to see why it's a false start, then with luck you won't be inclined to commit the same error again. That's the kind of progress that you're making rather than, as I said before, you know, rather than arriving at a set of agreed results. It's much more a matter of keep coming back to the same questions, seeing whether they can be sharpened in various ways, seeing whether they can be related to one another, perhaps in various unexpected ways, just coming back to them again and again from various different directions to see what light that might be able to cast. In general, just trying to think all the time more and more clearly about the issues. But you won't find much in the way of consensus, and you won't even find much in the way of consensus about what would count as consensus. (laughs) I mean, there's even dispute about whether what we're doing here is trying to arrive at results at all. Uh, Some metaphysicians would say, well, no, there are no agreed results because, in fact, that's not the nature of the enterprise in the first place. We're not trying to arrive at results. We're just trying to clarify our own thought processes or introduce clarity where it's initially missing in some of our most fundamental thinking in ways that should ideally lead to clarity in other areas of thought.
0: So we're clarifying common questions?
1: Common questions, common, common procedures, common assumptions. And what are some of these common questions? Let me give you an example of a classic metaphysical question, which has, I think, an unexpected application If this example is convincing, then it will also address the other question that often arises about metaphysics, which is, what's the point? Why why do people engage in this enterprise at all? So the the question that I have in mind, which is a very ancient question, I mean, this is one of the many metaphysical questions that Aristotle himself addressed 2,500 years ago, is the question whether the future is already fixed in any sense. So this is a question about time, about the nature of time. And the issue is, are propositions, statements about the future already true or false? Or do they not become true or false until the events in question occur? So for example, if I say that um, Manchester United will win the Premiership this season... Have I just said something that's true or false, as the case may be, or is it, for the time being, neither? We have to wait and see, we have to see what happens next May. By the time we get to the end of the season, then it will be one or the other, true or false, as the case may be. But not yet. So, as I say, this is an ancient metaphysical quandary, and it does have some fairly obvious repercussions for other questions that we might want to raise. For example, the question whether human beings have free will. Because you might well think that one of the problems with supposing that claims about the future are already true or false is that that looks as if it's a kind of threat to our free will. Uh, Somebody that thinks that um, propositions about the future are already true or false seems to be suggesting that everything is already fixed in advance and therefore there's nothing that we can do about it. It's not possible for us to alter the course of future history any any more than it is for us to alter the course of past history. That's one natural reaction, natural worry that a lot of people have to the idea that claims about the future are already true or false. Now... It is itself a matter of metaphysical dispute whether those worries are well grounded. There are lots of philosophers who would claim that the future is already fixed in some sense and yet who would deny that that poses any kind of threat to our free will. So you know already you're in an area of metaphysical controversy, and that's one of the big bones of contention about that particular issue in the philosophy of time. But you may remember a little while ago I said that this is a metaphysical question that also has unexpected repercussions elsewhere in philosophy. The connection with free will is a fairly obvious one, but there's also an unobvious connection that's recently been emphasised by the American philosopher Quine. Now, Quine's no longer alive. He died a few years ago, but a great 20th century philosopher who did a lot of work in metaphysics amongst other areas. And he noticed a connection between this metaphysical question and some basic ethical problems that confront us. Now, he himself was sympathetic to the view that the future is already fixed, in the sense that claims about the future are already true or false. That was the view that he himself would have advocated. And he said that, amongst other things, that view has the following ethical payoff. And then he drew attention to a couple of ethical principles that he said a lot of people would be sympathetic to. I mean, they are themselves both controversial, but they're things that, that in both cases, you would expect a fair degree of consensus. One was the principle that it's important for us to care about the environment for the sake of future generations. And, you know, that seems very sound, very plausible, fundamental principle, that we owe it to future generations... To look after the environment and to make sure that, you know, as it were, we pass on a hospitable home to them. So that's one principle. Another principle, again, there's some controversy about this, but another principle that you would expect to find a lot of people subscribing to is the principle that we ought to be concerned about overpopulation and that birth control is important to combat the threat of overpopulation, that if we're not careful, we might find that there are eventually simply too many people from the planet. So, again, you know, a very plausible principle that, as I say, a lot of people would subscribe to. But Quine said, well, look, on the face of it, there's a little bit of a a puzzle here, because these two principles are both very plausible, you could probably find lots and lots of people who would subscribe to both. And yet, on the face of it, there seems to be a little bit of tension between them, because the one principle that we should care about the environment for the sake of future generations suggests that the rights of people who don't exist yet are as important and need to be taken into account in, in, uh, to the same extent as the rights of people that do exist. Okay, And yet on the other hand, there's this idea that we should be exercising birth control. That seems to suggest that s- <laughs> some of them, we're going to deprive them of the very opportunity to exist so you know on the one hand there we are claiming that future individuals have rights just like everybody else even if they don't exist yet on the other hand it looks as if we're prepared to deprive some of them of their very existence how can these two principles be reconciled these two intuitively plausible principles now at long last we come back to the metaphysical question you're probably sitting there thinking what's all this got to do with with the metaphysical question But the metaphysical question, remember, was whether propositions about the future are already true or false. And Quine's view is that we do well to think that they are. And the way he tied that metaphysical question to these two ethical principles was as follows. He says, well, look, suppose that we do think of it as already mapped out. What this means is that in some sort of tenseless sense, in some sort of timeless sense, there are already these future individuals. They don't exist yet. They don't exist in a tensed sense. They're not around now. But those occupants of the 22nd century and the 23rd century, or whatever it might be, are, in some tenseless sense, as real as you and I are. Because all these propositions about the future are already true. I mean, the, the future to that extent is already mapped out. So yes, their rights are important, just as ours are, because they exist in this tenseless sense, just as we do. On the other hand, birth control doesn't deny the right of life to anybody. Because if you exercise birth control, all that happens is that certain possible individuals never get to exist. There are no people, tenselessly, that never will exist. So you can square this particular circle. The the little bit of metaphysical machinery there has enabled you to think, so Quine would say, more clearly about the ethical principles that you wanted to subscribe. So the payoff, if it's fair to call this payoff, is that metaphysical work has provided you with a kind of clarity in your thinking and has enabled you to to satisfy yourself, that two principles that you wanted to subscribe to, you can subscribe to, that the tension that there seemed to be between them isn't real tension. But, of course, all of that presupposes that uh, Quine's view about the original metaphysical question is correct. And another metaphysician might say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I still don't think it is correct for reasons X, Y and Z. Or somebody who was disinclined to think of it as a matter of correct or incorrect might put the same point rather differently and say, well, you can talk in those terms, but there's too heavy a price to pay because you then create problems for yourself in this other area of human thought and inquiry. So, for example, perhaps after all it does create problems as far as the question of free will is concerned, which was the other issue that we touched on briefly
0: at an earlier stage. So, to be correct, a response to a metaphysical question has to also apply to other metaphysical questions. That's
1: my own view. I certainly would personally insist on that. I think if there isn't any connection with anything else, then the question, why bother or what's the point of all of this, really does become quite an urgent question. It is a little bit like, you know, the tired old cliche of uh, sitting and debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, it it really does sort of start spinning in a vacuum of its own, perhaps, perhaps, affording a certain kind of intellectual pleasure in the same way that doing a crossword puzzle can afford a certain kind of intellectual pleasure, but not really engaging properly. And my own view is that unless metaphysics connects in some way with other concerns, other theoretical concerns, ultimately with other practical concerns, then it is a pointless exercise, strictly speaking. There isn't, then, a good answer to the question, why bother But as regards what the implications of that are for correctness or incorrectness, again, that's another interesting question, another interesting philosophical, metaphysical question. I mean, to go back to the example that we were just looking at due to Quine, it may be that one reaction to that example and one reaction to what I've just been saying about how metaphysics should tie in with other concerns is that you can take the view that there's no definitive right or wrong answer about these metaphysical questions, that in fact you're at liberty to spell things out in more than one way. You know, There are different equally legitimate ways of talking about the future talking about our talk about the future and all that matters is what you're going to go on to do with it so there's quine insisting that propositions about the future are already true or false well what exactly is it that he's insisting what is he doing with that well he's given us given us an example of what he's doing with that he's relating that metaphysical Claim to this other pair of ethical principles, and arguably has provided himself with a way of thinking clearly about why those two metaphysical principles can both be subscribed to, even though it looked at one stage as if there was some tension between them. Now, at the same time, another philosopher who's more concerned with the problem of free will, let's say, might want to insist that claims about the future are not yet true or false, because by denying that they're already true or false, that enables that philosopher to say some of the things that he or she wants to say about the problem of free will. And it could be that Quine and this other philosopher are not really disagreeing with each other. It may be that it's not like a mathematical or scientific question to which there's a simple yes or no answer. That in fact, what's going on here is that different philosophers are exercising their concepts in different ways, carving things up in different ways, making sense of things in different ways, if you like, because of how that in turn will impact on other more specific questions that they're addressing.
0: Ethical principles in the one case, the problem of free will in the other case. Outside of philosophy, outside of the academy. Mm. What is the point of metaphysics?
1: Let's suppose that quite right, and uh, he's given us an example of how thinking clearly about a metaphysical issue can help you to think clearly about a, a couple of ethical principles. That would be a particular example of the kind of point that you might expect metaphysics to have more generally. If you think about some of the areas of fierce ethical debate, like the problem of abortion for example, which is a clearly very, very controversial issue, well, there's a huge amount that goes into debates about abortion, but it could be that sooner or later one of the things that's going to be involved is some metaphysical thought about the nature of life, the nature of persons, what what counts as the start of life, or what's relevant to the question of what counts as the start of life. And I don't for one minute want to suggest that metaphysicians are going to be able to sit down and solve all of these problems. I think that would be an absolutely crazy suggestion. And, and nor do I think you know that if only people turned to the metaphysicians they would find suitable clues for settling these great controversies but what i what i do think is that there's a realistic chance that a degree of metaphysics could help people to think more clearly about the views that they already have or the views that they're trying to defend and might ultimately help them to articulate their views better and therefore to advance the debate. It'll probably always be a matter of deep controversy, but at least if you have a better sense of what your opponent is saying and why they're saying it, the controversy can proceed in a in a more disciplined way and there can be greater respect for other people's alternative viewpoints and so on and so forth and a lot of the current debate or a lot of the nature of the current debate whereby people often seem to be talking
0: past each other could ideally be be avoided So to a certain extent one is thinking about metaphysical questions in everyday life
1: Yeah, and that brings us right back to square one actually, doesn't it? I mean, that was in a way the starting point that what the metaphysician is is somebody who's interested in the basic principles and categories that govern even our everyday thinking, the kinds of presuppositions that we carry around with us all the time. So I suppose that what I've just been suggesting is that the clearer that you can be about some of those, the more willing you are to examine some of those and to question some of those, the better your chances of thinking clearly about other issues and addressing other concerns.